millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe, and today I'm talking to the CEO of the Responsible Business Initiative for Justice, Celia Ouellette, a non-profit organization that works with companies to champion fairness, equality, and effectiveness across systems of punishment and incarceration. Celia's story of being inspired to set up the initiative following one of many conversations with men facing death sentences in the United States of America is remarkable. Celia, welcome to my Second Chance podcast. It's, it's really nice to, to have you on. Let me start by just asking you the question, who are you? What do you do? What is the Responsible Business Initiative for Justice. Hi, Raphael. I am a lawyer, but don't hold that against me. I am a campaigner and an activist. I think that's probably how I would describe myself. Um, the Responsible Business Initiative uh, for Justice is an organisation I created a few years ago, and the goal of the organisation is to try to make businesses better allies um, for the campaigners and organisers and activists working on the ground um, on on criminal justice reform to ensure that those businesses are are kind of the best allies that they can be that they're la- laying down their levers in the right place and they're taking care of business internally as much as they as they possibly can. The aim is to achieve what? To end mass incarceration, to um, end extreme sentencing, and to reduce prison prison populations across across the world. Just small aims. <laughs> Small names. And is it just focused on prison and prisoners? No, I mean, to me, 
anyone who's sort of engaged in the justice system includes people that have never been to prison but are very likely to go to prison and also includes people who've been in prison and are struggling to make sure that they don't go back. So if I kind of think about the entire pipeline, it's, um, you know, right from the nose to tail, it's, those, it's the people that are um, sort of on the conveyor belt that inevitably leads to, leads to prison and those people that have have served their sentences, done their time and are, are trying to get back on their feet or, or trying to stay on their feet, like exactly the kind of concept of second chances, I suppose, you know, those people should have um, should have served their time and be free from their prison experience, um, but they often aren't. So this is kind of disentangle people in the process of disentangling, I would say, are very much the communities that we serve as much as people that are currently serving time. I want to take on the the whole issue of incarceration and, and what the initiative actually does to help people and how you work with people. But first, I want to talk about who you are, because I think it's important for people to know who this voice is what your voice represents what brought you to the place where you are now being an activist i mean we know what a lawyer does i don't know whether you're a criminal or private lawyer but let's just start with with celia you know you've got an english accent so you're obviously from from england or aren't you tell me a bit about who you are i'm a bit of a hybrid i was born and raised in the uk moved to america at 21 um, and only moved back a couple of years but moved back to the uk a couple of years ago and up until covid spent my time divided between both countries. This is the longest um, stretch of time I've actually been in one country, been in the UK since uh, since I was 21 years old, been outside of the US since I was 21 years old. So I am dual qualified. I'm, I'm qualified to practice law in the US and the UK, but um, my entire career and all of my practice has been in the US. And um, the, the predominant field of um, law that I've practiced in my career is is on death penalty cases, capital defence. How did you get into to becoming a lawyer in the first place? I think I came home from a careers fair at the age of 12 and told my mum that I was going to be a lawyer. And she said, um, that's really hard. You've got to go to Oxford if you want to do that. Um, so I ordered a prospectus from Oxford University, tore out the jurisprudence page and pinned it on my wall and went to Oxford at 18. Um, so, you know, how I ended up practicing um, criminal def- on criminal defence cases, I- I'd always wanted to be a criminal defence lawyer. What was it that drove you? I mean, at 12 years old, to come home from a careers fair and sort of say, I'm going to correct the world, or at least the world of justice or injustice, is quite a powerful thought for a 12-year-old. And, and, and I know it probably evolved uh, as you got slightly older, but what was it? What was it that you were seeing or hearing or witnessing that made you think something's wrong and I'm going to do something that can make it right? Even if that weren't your desire at the beginning, anybody who becomes a lawyer or a solicitor gets into that game, not necessarily for the money, especially in the criminal aspect of it, um, but because they have, I don't know, the right way of thinking or the right heart. I think that's it. I think it was just the right way of thinking. Like, to me, it wasn't a reaction to anything. It was just that the more that I learned, the more that I identified with that. I I won a school prize for integrity. And I remember looking up the word integrity. (laughs) Ironically, I won a dictionary, (laughs) which would have been really helpful for looking up the word integrity. But like, I think that there was something that was always in me, like this really strong sense of justice. And it's not so much right and wrong, but it's very much a sense of like, um, people shouldn't be written off and that everybody deserves a second chance. I was like, I know this sounds like I'm plugging the podcast, but I think that's exactly what it was. Like, 
I think there was always a sense that I like I recognised that I had a lot of privilege and a lot of regards that um you know growing up in in the Western world and like a you know um a, a supportive family and going to a good school and all these things and like obviously being quite bright and there was just this feeling that that had to be for something that that had to kind of be for the purpose of like standing up for what I believed in I, I just though looking back at it there's just like there were all these little things like there was a school essay prize and I wrote about the Diane Pretty case which was the woman who um suffered multi uh, motor neurone disease and, and took a case to um the European Court of Human Rights to argue her right to die which is kind of a crazy thing for a child to be interested in or understand but I think for me, wanting to be a criminal defence lawyer was always this feeling of like, if I was going to work hard, which I always did, especially if I was going to practice law, which I knew you had to work all through the night, that was the sort of thing I knew, then it better be something that you found really interested in. And that when you were sat at your desk at one o'clock in the morning, kind of scratching your head and trying to figure thing out, things out, then it should be something that that you wanted to keep reading and wanted to keep kind of doing. And I think that that was, that was it for me with criminal law. It was this kind of like point of the subject matter was really interesting and like my purpose in it was really clear I felt that I could do something helpful for and that I could be like a kind of soldier in the army for yeah the direction of travel was always like just very easy for me to make those decisions like I knew what I liked I knew what I was good at and I knew where I could kind of be useful and a lot of that was um just like personal choice like what did I want to do what should I find useful you know what did I find interesting people say like oh how come you ended up being a, a death penalty defense lawyer and like of, of course some part of this is you know it's um it's extremely people it's a extremely people oriented area of law um you know you have cases that go on for six seven years um you know your client your client's family their extended family like your own you spend a lot of time in jeans and not a suit um you spend a lot of time sitting on couches with people's smelly dogs on your lap like or outside their houses you spend a lot of time kind of being um being human with people I remember one case I worked on I I worked with the victim the victim's family um and they said that they decided they heard that this lawyer was coming and that she was English and this was this ranch out in South Dakota. And they said that they decided they were going to like me when they saw the car door open and a pair of jeans and boots come out rather than a lawyer in a suit. And that's most of my career has not really been in a suit. Um, in fact, the work that I do now where I spend a lot of time with businesses is the first time I've actually had to like buy some clothes that aren't super washable. You talk about clothes defining how people perceive you let me just take you back on a couple of the things that you you said because I find I, I think they're interesting I'm sure the listeners will too did you grow up you say you grew up with this privileged background that led you going to Oxford and, and having ambitions were any of your friends or associates caught up in crime no my father who's deceased was always a little bit close to the line probably but no and he didn't live with us I had no experience with the justice system until my first clients. Very academic understanding of it, I suppose. I like what you say about this suit and jeans business because I'm getting this perception and I don't know why, but I'm, I'm just trying to think it doesn't make the person, does it? The, the, it, it gives off a perception of, of who you may want them to believe you are, but it doesn't really make who you are. So 
who are you? Uh, you know, whether you've got a suit on or, or a pair of jeans, who are you as a person? That has a lot to do with like what my reputation was as, as a lawyer as well. And is as a lawyer, like I sort of earned the nickname on capital cases as the client whisperer and that I would end up consulting on cases where teams felt very strongly like they knew what was best for their client. And perhaps they were right, but they just couldn't seem to communicate that to their client. And they couldn't seem to get to a place where their client agreed. And obviously, when you're talking about major decisions in a death policy case, your client's decision is is the final call. So in the most work that I did, I would work with both the legal teams and with the clients to try and kind of not like a mediator or anything. I mean, I would literally just sort of fly to some rural remote county and sit for days with a client talking about nothing if needed be until we kind of got to the point where they'd be like, I really don't want to file this motion. I'd say, why? And they'd say, because if my mum has to go on the witness stand, she's going to have to talk about the fact she was sexually abused when she was a child. And you're like, right. Okay. Now I understand. How do we move forward from here? What if we do an affidavit? What if we talk to your mum? And she says, I'm fine with that, if that's going to save my son's life. And so you kind of kind of get to these breakthroughs. And that's not really legal, right? That's not really a lawyer's lawyer. That's not what you learn at law school. That's being a human who is willing to see any other human. Doesn't matter if they've got an orange jumpsuit on. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter if their like hands are bolted to the table. Doesn't matter if they've done something terrible, right? Like you're in the moment, they're a human. How do you have a conversation with them? Before we talk more about what you're doing today, I, I want to stick with what you're talking about because I know people will find this area fascinating. I just a couple of nights ago for the first time watched um, a Netflix show called I Am Killer and I'd be interested in your take because for me it's always they portray an individual in a particular way in order to deliver a particular stereotype. I didn't watch all of it because I felt it was delivering not the true person but the image they wanted people to believe this killer who is on death row to be. Take me, Celia, to the very first time you, as a human being, approached a prison where you were going to meet a man or woman on death row. Just walk me through how you were feeling, what you saw, what you witnessed, what you smelt, what it was like, because it's quite a unique position. I've, I've only ever met one person on death row, and that was in Papua New Guinea, actually. What was that like? Just walk me through what you can remember. But I was pretty young when I started working on on pretrial cases, and I will never forget the first time I went to Twin Towers, which is Los Angeles County Detention Center, um, when I met my client who was facing the death penalty in in LA County. The overwhelming feeling that I have of that of of that jail experience um, was how dark it was. So you come from super bright, dazzling sunlight in downtown Los Angeles, and it. It was almost—it's like almost pitch black. I still can't understand how that jail was so dark. You kind of go through these like little tunnels and you get to the locked door. I just remember feeling like I'd done something wrong. They treated me like I was sort of untrustworthy. That's been a kind of long experience that anyone working with the defence team, a lot of the time, you you get 
a lot of hostility. I've been threatened to be strip searched. I've been told I can't take cases in certain jails. I once got um, threatened with strip search because I touched my client on the arm. My client had just decided to take a life without possibility of parole plea, which means that he will spend his whole life in prison without any opportunity to ever go before a parole board. This was a huge and horrible decision for him. And I remember like I just kind of passed him on the arm and was like, I think you've done the right thing. And then I left, which is super emotional for me, obviously, like you develop a real bond with these people. It's not not a champagne cork popping moment when somebody takes an LWAP plea. And I came back the next day and they said, oh, you know, you can't go in because you inappropriate touching. You know, as a woman, that makes you just feel unbelievably ashamed. I couldn't even I couldn't even understand what they were talking about. I thought that they'd got it wrong, got the wrong person. And then they explained to me that I touched him on the arm. You talk about developing a bond with what most people would describe as the most despicable of of criminals, uh, uh, regardless of the nature. Um, How do you develop a bond with a a man or a woman, predominantly men in, in probably the cases you worked in, who are about to either be sentenced to death or spend the rest of their life without the potential of parole in prison how do you build a bond with people like that I don't want to be like naive or like Pollyannish but like they are these are humans right you know they're not animals they're humans and I think that so much of the success of working on death penalty cases at least for me has been like you your client has to trust you and and they have to trust you have their best interests at heart um and the only and best way to get somebody to trust you is to, is to trust them and to kind of be willing to be open to them. You know, I think probably one of the biggest dangers of working as a death penalty defence lawyer is if you're good at it is compassion fatigue, because just over and over and over and over again, you have to kind of open up your heart, be willing to care for somebody who probably nobody's ever really cared for before and who's facing some very grim options in life and be maybe the first person that's ever been willing to give them that option to be trusted, to be liked, to be worthy of a conversation. I know it sounds really emotional, but people who end up on death row in America are the most neglected mentally ill you know extreme poverty extreme abuse often these cases don't kind of come out of nowhere of course you're going to have the occasional case that breaks the rules but 99% of my clients were a minority in the place that they were living in a lot of the time you know in county jails my client would be the black person the one black inmate in a in a white all white county jail and they're the one facing the death penalty the number of times that I heard parents say we should have got a dog or I should have had an abortion um parents that just sort of fundamentally couldn't care for them or didn't care for them um poverty to a level that I don't think I I couldn't ever have understood and mental illness to such an extreme level that people had a very very tenuous grip on reality and I think you know a lot of the things that are sad about death penalty cases is sometimes being arrested for a capital crime and being put in jail was the first time they were actually properly medicated and so sometimes I I would be looking at a client thinking I'm gonna have to take you off your medication 
for you to have mental health assessment that's actually going to come out with a realistic answer on what's going on with you. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to like throw you back into a way that your brain is just kind of fighting you. Clients with coop contra coop injuries, which are where the front and back of your brain have um, reduced electrical functioning because you've been shaken as a baby. Damage, brain damage on the front and back of your brain. Clients with brains that had hemorrhaged in the memory forming part of your brain because your brain will actually protect itself by killing brain cells in the memory portion of your brain by flooding the memory portion of your brain in order to forget childhood memories. How do these individuals slip through the the net then? I mean, you're witnessing it when you meet with your clients, but how do they get through the American criminal justice system then and and nobody recognise, or do they not care that these individuals have experienced such trauma that that's the reason they face or have committed the crime that they they committed? Because the impression I have, and I suppose many people who watch or or think about um, people on death row is we are talking about your mass serial killers or people that have killed in the cold dead of night without a care for their, their victims him etc etc but you're painting a completely different portrait of the individual who you Celia have met and not watched on television yeah I mean number one not everybody who goes to death row is a serial killer we've got drive-by gang related killings where people will go to death row number two a lot of people face the death penalty but don't end up on death row um and normally the outcome in those cases is a plea. So where you are taking somebody who's been let down by the system over and over again, probably suffering from severe mental illness, and you ask them to make a decision about whether they personally want to plead guilty in return for something less than the death penalty. If that were a contract, if that were buying a house and you were told you need to buy this house or you're going to get killed, that contract would never be legal but in American plea, plea deals, that's legal. You can threaten somebody, you can tell someone, you're going to take you to trial and you're going to get the death penalty. Um, a jury will sentence you to the death penalty um, unless you accept this plea. So 99% of cases that start as death penalty cases end in plea deals. And that also goes for other crimes as well, doesn't it? Because we, we know that, that people take pleas for robberies or other offences where, you know, you're facing 55 years in prison or five years if you sign on the dotted line. Most cases will end up on a plea in America. It's legal to execute somebody in America who's mentally ill. It's not illegal. There's no law against it. And there's this other massive problem that happens in America, which is quality of legal defence. You know, we think of America as having exceptionally good legal defence. You know, lawyers in America are really educated. A state like Alabama, the amount of money that the state pays lawyers to take on death penalty cases is so low that most lawyers won't do it because it just would potentially bankrupt their firm. You know, the number of people facing the death penalty who've been lived in privilege to the extent that the family can pay is I'd venture close to zero on a, you know, on a, on a year-to-year basis. 
So no way the lawyer can pay, no way the family could pay. So you're usually fighting. If you don't work, if you're, if you're a case that's, especially if you're a case that's conflicted out of the, the public defender, public defender sometimes manages its own pot of money, sometimes has to go to court. Normally what you're doing is going to the judge who's elected, right? So if you're in a state like Alabama, in a county with a Republican majority, you're, your judge is going to have run on a Republican ticket and been elected as such. And you're going to go to them and say, I need thousands of dollars in order to con- conduct an investigation, do the correct testing in order to determine whether my client has intellectual disability or not. They'll go, not going to pay for it. So there's a case in Tennessee right now, a guy called Purvis Payne, who by all accounts is intellectually disabled. But because he's reached a certain point in his appeals process, the court won't now let him introduce evidence of his intellectual disability. They say Purvis Payne should have introduced evidence of his own intellectual disability at a previous point. The guy's intellectually, he's literally intellectually disabled, right? Like he's not a lawyer. So what, what's really happened is previous lawyers haven't, haven't done this. They've made a mistake. Perhaps they didn't know, didn't have all, sort of, all the training that they needed. They didn't look into this. They didn't get the money to do it, whatever it was. They didn't introduce evidence of his intellectual disability. And now it doesn't matter if he's intellectually disabled or not, he won't be able to introduce it unless he gets some sort of special dispensation, right? Which is nigh on impossible to get. I mean, there's a sort of famous quote in America that there comes a point where innocence is irrelevant. And it's because you can get to a point in appeals where all the appeals court is looking at is the decision of the court below. And if the decision of the court below didn't have this information in front of them, you can't introduce it now. Do you think it's changing though? I mean, I I suppose... The the drive is towards injustice, and there are injustices taking place in and out of the American court systems. But you know, it spills onto the streets in many ways that we've seen recently with George Floyd, etc. But do you think that today social media is bringing about a change because people are becoming more aware? You and I are speaking about it right now, so somebody listening to this will be educated, will learn something they did not know about the American justice system. Whether they care or not is another thing. Whether they take action or not is another thing. But do you think? based on the work that you've done and the experience you have that there is a driving change that people are becoming more aware in the same way that that the american president has just changed i mean i think the american president is a really good example right the incoming president the president-elect is a really good example yes definitely definitely that's change i mean president trump will executed more people than any president in the last 57 years combined by the time he leaves. Biden is saying that he will he will end the death penalty. Does he have a say? I mean, surely it's individual states make the decision. I mean, it's probably too political for me to even understand. There is a federal death penalty that Biden does have a level of con- control over. Congress would need to formally end it. Um, but he could issue a moratorium on executions. He could stop executions. He could also get creative with clemency. And that means taking people, not pardoning people, but taking them from death to, to a less than death sentence. You know, a good example of like what you can do at the executive level is is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who literally took apart the death chamber in California's death row, dismantled it, removed it. But I do think across the US, people are taking notice. I think the protests that we had in 
cities across America, you know, blue cities, red cities, white people, black people marching on the streets. Like this was heard in the work that I do now. I work with businesses. Now when businesses are taking action because they're scared of cancel culture, because they know this is what their employees want, um, because this is they kind of feel the, the pinch on their brand to make sure that they are keeping up with what society, like communities expect of them. Now you're seeing things really change because you have some of some of the sort of system actors with the highest social capital saying we want to see change we want things to be done differently you know we don't want to invest in places you know we see it as a risk to invest in places with extremely poor policing practices or high um, police violence there were a lot of George Floyds before George Floyd but I do think that this has been a moment where we haven't, in the words of one of my amazing colleagues in the community, we haven't pressed snooze in quite the same way as we have before, and it's having an impact. How did it go from you being um, involved in the death row, death penalty, to to what you do now? Was there a bridge or was it straight out and in? It sort of was that. It was those cases um, that made me feel that I need to be involved in a project that addressed the system. And it was actually a client, (laughs) an intellectually disabled client, um, who I remember sitting with, like I said earlier, you know, I'd never wanted to like leave after somebody had taken a plea. And this was somebody who'd taken a plea. And we sat around in a county jail eating Oreos. Um, The jail had let us bring Oreos in. So stuffing as many Oreos in as he could in the time that we had, Um, he sort of through mouthfuls of Oreos said to me, but Celia, why are you here? Like, why are you here talking to people like me one at a time, kind of smuggling us across a border? Like, why are you working on case by case within the system? And we talked a lot about how unfair his options were. He pled to a 20, 20 year sentence, which actually for me was one of the best pleas that I'd ever accomplished for somebody who'd started on facing the death penalty in my career (laughs) but he was 18 and to him this was a really long sentence and it it was it is it is a long sentence and I remember him sort of saying to me like but like this is so unfair and I would kind of say to him over and over again I know I know it's unfair but like we have to make decisions in the context of like what you have what what your options are today like not some fantasy criminal justice system that doesn't exist and he would keep going back to like, it's not fair, it's not fair. So as he was kind of stuffing these mouthfuls of Oreos, he was like, you need to go and make this system less unfair. You need to make it so that people don't have these crappy choices. I'm this person that sits in jails and in my washable outfits and visits people and figures things out. And he was like, you need to get businesses. You know, you need to get businesses. If I had a big business involved in my case, um, and that was actually a case in Kentucky. He was like, if I had Yum, Yum, KFC, Yum, the company that owns KFC, if they cared about me, this would never have happened. And to him, it was so black and white. It was like he was facing these crappy options because no one cared about him. And fundamentally, he was right, right? You know, like he was right on so many things, like a sort of like savant, right? He was right that um, if if a big company with power wanted to create change, they could. And that the reason why big companies didn't really care at that time was because they didn't have proximity. It's interesting, the first question you asked me, like, what was my background in this? You know, what what was my experience? Like, how would I got proximate to the justice system at some point? And loads of people haven't and hadn't. 
But he sort of hit on this nerve because there'd been a long time that I'd been thinking about this. I'd spent earlier part of my career working with governments on death penalty cases and kind of thinking like, man, when I go with the low, when I go with the government down to the jail, we get that hostile, we're the enemy thing. But later in the afternoon, they're getting the red carpet rolled out when they go to the mayor's office or the chamber of commerce. Like, how do we connect these dots? Like, how do, how do these people that care about this foreign government in this context start caring about my client in a county correctional centre. This was when we were hearing a lot about like millennials want purpose, you know, millennials want businesses to declare their corporate citizenship. And like this, I sort of knew that there was this itch to be scratched, that that, that the organisations on the ground who are trying to create change needed powerful allies and supporters. They needed to like shift that power dynamic. They needed more people to care about the things that they cared about. And at the same time, businesses were kind of reaching across the aisle and saying, we want to have impact and we want to be relevant and helpful, but we don't really know how to do that or where to start. And obviously the answer is you start by connecting to the community organisations. And so it just sort of wasn't happening. Um, uh, the death penalty movement actually kind of sits together. And we talked about this and I'd said, I think we need to create create an entity that, that does exactly this, that is the glue between these two sides. Because if we can glue them together, like real, really powerful, valuable stuff is going to happen. That all sounds good and well, but I'm thinking businesses would only get involved in these issues if it helps their revenue stream or they can benefit. It's just a box ticking exercise i mean correct me if i'm wrong i see it a little bit differently but i think what had come before the creation of rbij was that there had been a series of kind of statements legislation you know for example at the eu level france had enacted a a piece of legislation that required businesses to be vigilant about human rights and so there was this there was this expectation i mean i guess i'm hesitating because there was there is this inbuilt and there was this inbuilt expectation on businesses to take on sort of social good projects and to not only be mindful of not damaging human rights or or communities themselves, but to actively um, promote and protect human rights given their kind of leverage and their positions of responsibility in communities. So that 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 had come before. So we we were talking to businesses that knew they needed to do something but didn't know what that was. But what had really happened was because of those that body of law and that movement that predated the organisation, a lot of businesses had hired a person to do that job or multiple people to do that job. And those people often came from backgrounds more like mine. And, and so a lot of the time I was sitting down with a human rights lead or a social justice lead or or an advocacy lead within an organization who actually really wanted to do something and they had probably gone from a campaign job to a to a corporate job believing in a similar way to me that like greater change bigger things could happen if they sat in that role so i think that we are now at a place where social good is not antithetical to purpose and profit. Like there's this point now where businesses know and recognise and need to build build programmes um, that benefit communities into their structure in order to stay alive, literally, from a bottom line perspective. But what that does is 
leadership then gives permission to a group of people who are actually a lot of the time highly motivated and quite knowledgeable um, to go and to go and do something with a company's brand. Is it perfect? No. A lot of the time, you know, we have a menu of things we want a business to do and they can't do all of them. Is it better that they do some of them rather than none of them? Of course. Are we talking more than than corporate social responsibilities? So this is more than that, is it? Definitely. I think CSR is is kind of a thing of the past now. This is sort of social activism within companies. You know, a company like Ben & Jerry's is the sort of maybe unattainable gold standard for this. This is a company that will take on projects that they believe benefit the community and they will actually become leaders, almost kind of coalition leaders in in seeing that done. And they will lay the tools out on the table and say, this is what we think we can bring. This is our product. We can raise money. We can use, um, you know, Jet Ben and Jerry's voices to try and like achieve something. But these are business leaders. These are not people that are driven by, I mean, correct me. I mean, I'm thinking out loud here and I'm thinking, but these are people that have made successful, you know, multi-million pound businesses and their driver is money, not the good of communities that are suffering in some way, shape or form. I think what I'm trying to say is like, businesses have realised that those two things are not antithetical. They are now connected. Supporting the benefits of your community is actually good for business. You know, there's like lots of sort of phrases and words around it, like stakeholder capitalism, right? Which is like, you can no longer just make money for the benefit of your shareholders, but your company will actually be better off if you see community members as stakeholders in your company. The number of businesses that scrambled to post black tiles um, in the wake of the, the murder of George Floyd, you know, no business wanted to be silent. It was far more dangerous to be silent on these issues than it was to even to get it wrong. It was better to, to say something, even if it was wrong. The place where the, the hesitation that you're raising really does worry me and does you know whether the work needs to be done is how accountable businesses will stay to the things that they say they're going to do and how they'll how they'll stick with this for the long haul but I think that that comes from a combination of of pressure from consumers and people um, and it comes from a combination of that with other businesses you know when you've got big companies racing to the top saying this is what we're going to do now their competitors don't want to be left behind that's something we're definitely seeing i'm definitely seeing a lot of right now is that businesses that hear about what other businesses are doing start to go a bit pale and worry that they're going to get left behind i think on big issues big human rights issues like the death penalty there's definitely a feeling of not wanting to be kind of on the wrong side of history on things that are tipping and changing you talked about being the glue, your organisation being the glue between, I, I, I hesitate to say offenders, but people in that situation and, and businesses. How do you bring them together and how do they work together? In America, one in three adults have a criminal record. So actually, sometimes towards the end of a meeting with a business leader or a representative of a business, they'll say, actually, my brother, sister, cousin, father, husband, whatever, had some had some interaction with the justice system. Um, but we we ask them to go through a process of um, spending time with and listening to people that have experienced or are currently experiencing the justice system. It's actually a really effective way of getting businesses to see where they can be most valuable. Um, you know, a lot of the time when we talk to a business, they'll say, 
um, you know, where do I start? And what's on the menu? Tell, tell me what you want from me. And sure, we can we can tell them what we want from them. But it's so much better when we say, okay, well, listen to these people over a period of time. You know, we're going to set you up with a bunch of meetings with people that have experienced the justice system. And then we'll regroup because at that point, you're probably going to say, I think we can rather than what do you want us to do? But I'm interested in what do you want, not just you, but anybody like myself who actively is involved in trying to promote change around justice and the way people see justice. What is it you want from businesses? What can businesses do to, I don't know, give people a second chance or to create a platform where people's communities, etc., can be changed? I mean, we want them to do basically two things. We want them to use their platforms externally a lot of the time we want them to use their voices their leverage their platforms to create change whether that's around particular pieces of law or decisions of of kind of what i would call change makers like biden would be one of them right in his first 100 days is biden going to prioritize a moratorium on executions or is he going to prioritize something else pressure from businesses would would be a component to that decision making great example we just did a piece of work in ohio where we were kind of the glue between a group of local campaigners who are trying to get um, juvenile life without possibility of parole. Mind-blowing. It is exactly what it sounds like. Children being sentenced to life sentences with no possibility of ever asking for parole. They will never go before a parole board. Which means they will never be released from prison. Not only will they never be released, they'll never even been given the opportunity to assess whether they should be released. And this is children. This is the only country in the world that practices this is America. And they haven't signed the UN Convention on the Right of the Child because it specifically calls this out as a human rights violation. So taking that as an example, you will lobby, you will campaign businesses who can influence the state of Iowa to to reconsider this law or at least put Biden or somebody in power uh, under pressure to review this. Is that what you do? So in Ohio, we work with a group of businesses who we we believed would care about this issue if we could educate them on this issue. So um, and that kind of connects to the second component of what we want businesses to do. So these were largely a group of businesses that were hiring people who had criminal offences, what we call second chance hirers. So we reached out to those businesses and then we said, did you know that there's a piece of legislation um, in Ohio that there's a, a, a campaign gathering pace in Ohio to end juvenile life without possibility of parole sentencing? You know, this kind of goes back to your point about like businesses need to understand the bottom line. This had nothing to do with their bottom line. Juvenile life without parole, thank, thank God, isn't millions of people, it's thousands of people children but it's a small percentage and all you're asking for is for them to have the possibility of going before a parole board i mean we had the conversation i just had with you which is like wait what in our state we sentence children to life without the possibility of parole and for these businesses they all had proximity because they knew you know Rayshan in one of the examples who was a line manager who had been to prison as a child and they were like god if Rayshan had never been given the opportunity to leave prison what a crazy thing that would have been. So they had this point of reference and those businesses actually, they worked really hard to educate lawmakers on why they believed there was a business case to be made around the concept of redemption and values, the sort of what is what does the state of Ohio look like if it doesn't have redemption as one of its core values? And that was something that businesses wanted to see. And these are not big multinationals with lofty aspirations of human rights. These were like powder wood manufacturers. 
wet wipe manufacturers in the state of Ohio. And they called lawmakers and they wrote a letter to lawmakers. They published op-eds and wrote letters to the editor in their local newspaper saying, if you care about the business community, the business community wants this. Um, and this piece of legislation, which had um, widely been tipped to kind of fail probably at committee level, it had failed 2016, 17, 18, 19, went through committee and to the Senate floor and passed through the Senate with only two people against it. So it overwhelmingly passed the Senate. So when you say it passed, does that mean that the law was changed? Still has to go to the House and be signed into law by by the governor. But these legislators had worked with local campaign organization. They recognized that this was a place that they could be particularly valuable. And the kind of biggest sticking point, actually, um, that piece of legislation is going to the House this week, tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, sometime this week. Um, so we'll kind of Maybe we can update you on whether that piece of legislation goes through the House before this podcast goes out. I'd really like to know what the outcome is. And that's the big picture. You also mentioned the second chance employment, which is another kind of component to the work that you do. Tell me a bit about that. If you hire people who have criminal convictions, their chances of reoffending go down. That's a fact. We know that if they don't have a job, they're much more likely to reoffend. Number two, um, Having people that are unemployed or underemployed after after experiencing incarceration um, costs our economies a lot of money. You know, when people say to me, like, why should I care about people who are in prison? Why should I care about people kind of reentering successfully after prison? Like, maybe one of the best arguments is like, it's your money. It's your money that gets wasted if this is unsuccessful. You know, 95% of people in America who go to prison will come out. If you fail at them coming out, it's expensive. It's really expensive to have a pool of people that could work that aren't working. And it's really expensive to keep incarcerating people as a solution to that problem. And then the final win is actually that a lot of the time people who have experienced incarceration are great. They're great. The guys that work on the factory floor that have experienced incarceration um, are more loyal uh, stay for longer and work harder than than people who haven't. Um, and a lot of the time that's because they really, really appreciate what it's like to have a job and to take home a paycheck. Um, and, and so long as they can kind of rise through the ranks, and we're not talking about like just keeping people at entry level jobs forever and ever, um, you know, that's kind of a, a, a potential win within the workforce too. And this is like the evidence of this being a fact is, Companies like J.P. Morgan Chase pledging to employ 10%, pledging 10% of their workforce will be formally incarcerated. So they're looking at every role where they're not prohibited from hiring somebody with a, with a conviction and trying to hire somebody with a conviction, like trying to make sure that they're reflecting people who have convictions in that workforce. And a lot of this is being driven by diversity as well, diversity and inclusion issues, because you know, you have to remember, if you exclude people from your workforce who have a criminal conviction, your workforce just shifted in its racial composition quite dramatically, because we know that people who have experienced incarceration are disproportionately black and brown. But surely they can employ people of black and brown colour from the normal work pool. They don't have to have been people that are incarcerated. There are more black and brown people in society that have not been caught up in the criminal justice system. But I get it and I hear it and I understand it. What do you do to to join those dots, employers employing ex-offenders? 
I see our work as like out on the front, the tip of the spear, and then we hold hands with a lot of people that can kind of um, take people from raising their hand all the way to offering jobs. So we work with a number of partners that that are actually hands-on support. So they will sit with your human resources department and work you through all the paperwork you need to fill in, ensuring you had adequate um, insurance in place, working out hiring practices that eliminate bias. So things like ban the box, which is where um, you remove the question, do you have a criminal conviction um, from from job applications? Sometimes that there is evidence that it, it can actually result in bias against black and brown people. So kind of working through like recruitment strategies that avoid that, And do you think you're making the impact that you set out to do after you met that young man who said to you, Celia, what are you doing? What can you do for more of me? I mean, it sounds to me like you are, and I'm impressed by what you're doing. And it's great because I'm an advocate that businesses can make a change. And I myself have made a a few programs here in the UK around Virgin, Timpsons and the likes who who invest in in, um, people coming out of prison, giving them a second chance, um, uh, um, skilling up um, uh, offenders in prison by training them on whatever it is that they're training them to do. I own a trustee of a company called Kodat at the moment who are learning prisoners to code you know and they're going off to work in banks so it's all it's all great and it's all in the right direction um but what would your advice be to that person listening and sort of saying well before you uh, uh, employ that ex-offender you should be employing my son or daughter who's unemployed and have never been in trouble with the law what do you say to those people who think well let's deal with the the real unemployed before you deal with those who are unemployed because of the choices or mistakes they made in life Let's take a second one first, right? Let's do the bad news and the good news, right? So, um, you know, it, it, it's your money. <laughs> like, it's your money, I think, is the answer, right? Unless we get these statistics about how... I don't care how we do it. We need to reduce incarceration, right? And one way to reduce incarceration is to stop people from reoffending. And one way to stop people from reoffending is to give them jobs. A lot of the time, remember, these jobs are not the ones that your son or your daughter or your uncle or your brother wants to do. We have to look at kind of communities as a whole and we have to make sure that the right person is hired for the right job. And at a certain point, if you've served your time, you should be you should be given a second chance. Right. You shouldn't be continuing to be in prison and being punished in the workforce um, as a result of something that you've done your time for. Okay, so. At a certain point, yes, you should have to compete against people that have criminal convictions because um, maybe they're better than you at doing a job and maybe they should get that job instead of you. Like we, we hire people on our team who've experienced the justice system firsthand and we hire people who haven't. And they're awesome. And that, maybe that leads me into my point on um, are we achieving what we set out to achieve and plug my incredible ninja force badass team we're hitting our five-year goals and we're not even one year in so yeah we're like in terms of like is the organization successful would my kentucky client be proud i don't know i think he probably would take the oreos again rather than some story about how successful i've been out in the world um but um yeah it's it's like it's happening it's really exciting that is because we hired the right team i think 
you know, and maybe that reflects back on your first question, which is, I really think the strength of our team is, is, is reflected by the fact that we have people on our team that have personal experience of the justice system, whether that's they themselves have been in or whether they have family members who've been inside um, or experienced it in, in some other way, but they have firsthand experience of the justice system um, in, in some, in some way. And that's informing um, how they work with the other team members. And then we have team members that have not and that have had, you know, had the humility and willingness to listen to kind of get get to the place where their skills and talents can actually um, be really put in put in the right place. And they're awesome. They're an awesome group of people. That's really good to hear. And and just finally, what 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 do you need as an organisation? What do you need more of for somebody who's listening who might be in a position to help you or get involved in what you do? What is it that you need more than? I say more than anything, but what would help you achieve the goals, which are brilliant. The campaigns I've seen on your website um, are brilliant, you know, in particular, the one you mentioned in Iowa, where where they're trying to take on this ridiculous law of locking kids up without the, the potential of parole. So what do you need from people? We need two things. In order to scale up, we need to fundraise. We're a nonprofit. I'll be completely honest. That's something we're always doing. Um, we don't charge for our services. Um, and we need businesses to reach out to us. We spend a lot of our time kind of pounding the pavement out there, talking to businesses, um, educating them, getting them to a point where they are willing to kind of be deployed or willing to like create a dream scenario and a really efficient way for us to do our work is when a business has done that work themselves and they come to us and say, you know, we're ready. Um, rather than us reaching out to them and saying, please, will you consider? Um, so, you know, whether it's listening to a podcast like this or attending like a webinar that we're on and we have big businesses we work with, businesses with like a million employees and we have small businesses with like 20, 30 employees. There's no business too small to have impact as long as you kind of lay those levers down in the right place, whether that's like hyperlocal or a business that has um, investment or partnership relationships. We do quite a bit of work with asset managers. Like these are very small groups of people sitting in very small offices with huge ability to create change if they're willing to kind of use the the tools at their disposal to do so. And then I think businesses get a little bite and they can see it and they can see how they've done something that created change. And from there, you sort of amass this incredible army of businesses that are willing to kind of use their social capital to to do some good thinking about everything we've talked about thinking about the time you walked into that very first county jail where you met that very first prisoner to the exec or the ceo that you walk into now in big businesses what does the the, the phrase second chance mean to, to you because you're giving businesses a second chance to, to do good, you're giving ex-offenders or, or, or you know, legislators a chance or you're trying to campaign for people to think about how things can work if, if they did things differently. What does second chance mean to you and your organisation? I think to me it's like parking judgment. There's a time, you know, as a lawyer, there's a time to be judged and you get judged and then when you've, you've been judged and you've served that, that's it. It's over. You know, you don't get banned from voting for life. You don't get banned from, um, you know, having a hairdressing license for life because of something you did years ago. Right. You do your time. You get judged. You do your time and then your judgment gets parked. And that's the end of it. You know, some people are going to 
not be ready for a second chance, but you have to kind of keep offering people the opportunity um, and never prevent people from having the opportunity to change. Thank you very much. And good luck with your endeavours to change the things you want to change. Thanks, Raphael. Thank you. I admire those who influence change for the good of us all, don't you? Anyway, if you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J-Row Productions, design work by Studio Minerva, and myself, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.